This is the fourth week, the final week of our series called Joy Thieves. If you have your Bible, go Philippians chapter 1. We'll start in verse 19 today. And we've been talking about um, over and over and over again, the theme of Philippians is joy. Uh, but we've been talking a lot about things that we focus on that are not the gospel, that that's get in and they steal our joy. We've talked about uh, thieves of insecurity, thieves of comparison, thieves of isolation, the thieves of circumstances, and yes, even uh, our favorite sports teams can steal our joy. Uh, today, we're going to talk about the joy thief of fear. Fear, all right? Um, and really, when we talk about fear, there's really two ways you can look at fear. Uh, first, there is the medically diagnosed fears, the phobias that we often mention um, in regards to fear. Here's a few of those things. Uh, the number one fear, I don't know if you knew this, the number one fear uh, listed is called glossophobia, which is the fear of public speaking. Number one fear. So if I called you up today to give some words to the congregation, some of you would go to the fetal position. Uh, hydrophobia, the fear of water. All right. Uh, nyclophobia is the fear of darkness. Acrophobia, the fear of high places. Some of you have that. Uh, taxophobia, that's not the fear of taxes, uh, but the fear of being buried alive. Uh, we know we've heard of claustrophobia. That's the fear of confined spaces. Um, and then there's the worst of all. The worst of all, and it is called Tennessee volophobia, which is the fear of winning. <laughs> the fear of winning. And the Alabama fans laugh and laugh and laugh. And I pray, Lord, come quickly and end this suffering. Yeah, absolutely. Just keep it coming. Lord, why do you tarry? I don't know. Um, these are phobias. Um, and let's transition out of that because I think there's a, a common street-level fear that we kind of experience in our day-to-day -day life. And listen if these don't ring true for maybe some of you. Sally worries about the kids all day when they're away from her at school. Jeff never seems to put down the burden and the fear of finances. Linda fears that she'll never get Married and be lonely forever. Katie's always scared that her husband is having an affair. Jimmy's paralyzed by his fear of inadequacy and the fear of being dominated by his wife. Kelly constantly worries about what people think about her. Stacy is never free from worrying about her weight. Richard dreads big crowds. Julie admits that she is kind of a germaphobe, while Catherine says that she's a hypochondriac and she always has that thing that's going around. High schoolers, Gracie and Greg, are in constant fear about what other students are saying about them and seeking their approval. Michael's afraid that he won't make the grade or make the team. As a senior, Jared is in a bit of a panic about what's going to happen to him after high school. Josh is afraid that every time that his boss calls him into his office of what he's going to tell him. Pete is a pastor. Pete is afraid that people won't come to his church. And he's afraid that he's going to lose people in his church. Fear is a part of something that we all wrestle with. 
Back in, At, in, in Eden, Adam and Eve, uh, they were fearless before the fall. They had no fears. Clearly, the rebellion in the garden gave birth to sin, the sin of fear. So we are under the curse. Now we have fear. Because of the fallen world that we live in, we are flawed people. And here's where the flaw comes in, because we like to be the navigators of our life, don't we? Don't we like to be the authors of our story? If I'm writing my story, my story's going to look like this, right? But we are not the writers of our story. There is a God bigger than us writing our stories. But we don't know that. We fight against that. We fight against that. Fear invades our life. And that's when fear becomes louder than our faith. Trepidation becomes louder than our trust in God. But this is where the loving Jesus comes in. In his loving grace, with his great patience, he is this dissatisfied redeemer in leaving us in this place of fear. By his grace and his love and his patience, he wants to speak a word into us that we would be able to trust Jesus and fear nothing. And that's our bottom line today. Let me, uh, let me read the passage that we're going to be in today. And then we're going to come back and begin to, pra- to, to unpack this. Now we have to understand that Paul, writer of this letter, we've talked about this. If anybody had a reason to fear, it was Paul. Can we agree that Paul's circumstances trump ours? Like your test that you have next week doesn't trump Paul. He doesn't know if he's going to live or die the next day. He doesn't know if he's going to be freed, pardoned, or if he's going to be in prison for the rest of his days. He has opponents and enemies all around him that are wanting to kill, shank him, do anything. He is one person that has every reason to fear. But let's see in the text if Paul gives way to his fear and if he allows fear to steal his joy. Verse 19. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now always as Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for me to live as Christ, to die is to gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you for all your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come to you and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, 
engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Let's pray. Lord, your light that Jesus Christ is always invades our very dark spaces. And it is often the dirty little secret of fear that um, not only is very present in the church, but present in our lives. Fear does not come from you. It is from the enemy. And I pray through the preaching of your word today, through Paul's gospel that you would drive out the darkness of our fears in our life. That you would walk us in places of courage, courage about what the future holds, courage over death, and God, courage over all of the opponents we have in our lives. We love you. Let your word do what it does. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's read... Uh, We're going to break this down here in three major sections today. Uh, Let's begin with Philippians 1, 18 really be. It's the end of 18 on to 20. And it says this, Yes, and I will rejoice, for that I know through your prayers and the help of the the Spirit of Jesus Christ that this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all ashamed, but that with full courage... Now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So Paul understands that fear is a crippling thing that will steal his joy that he has in Jesus. Notice Paul says that with full courage, he desires to honor Christ. Here's what's great about the text here is that courage is not self-willed here. It's not the pulling up by the bootstraps, the hard determination. This is not courage from your brave heart or your gladiator bravado. Where does Paul get his courage from? We're told seven times in these 11 passages his courage comes from. From Christ. Our courage only comes from Christ. A relationship with Christ, a growing knowledge of Christ, and a growing trust of Christ. There is the Christian's courage. So, today in this text, here's what we're gonna do we're gonna look at three fears that Paul lays out here. And we're going to see how the courage of Christ can drive out the fear of these three things. The first fear that can steal our joy is the fear of the future. Fear of the future. So some of you today, I don't know what tomorrow holds. I don't know what that medical report is going to come back and look like next week. I don't know if I'm going to be single forever, if I'm going to get a husband one day. I don't know if I'm going to lose my job or I'm not going to lose my job. I don't know where I'm going to live. I have no clue all of these things. I don't know what's going to happen to my kids. The paralysis of fear, what's going to happen to our children. These are real life things. These are fears of the future that we are all wrestling with. Now, 
looking at Paul's fear or lack of fear here, he's in prison, right? There's a great uncertainty about Paul's future, as we said. He does not know from day to day if he will be set free, remain in prison. He doesn't know if he's going to live. He doesn't know if he's going to die. He doesn't know if one of his opponents and his enemies is going to attack him or not. He is riddled with an uncertainty of what the future holds. The Roman justice system, it's unpredictable. So he doesn't, like the 21st century court systems, he didn't get to keep over and over again with a set of appeals. He didn't get to drag the process out. In any moment, he could lose his head like John the Baptist. He could be beaten and flogged and tormented like Jesus Christ. So why is Paul not in the fetal position, curled up in the corner, overwhelmed by his fear of the future? Well, he says this. He says that he is certain that his present and future circumstances will turn out for his deliverance. What Paul is not saying by deliverance. He's not saying, I am certain that I'm going to get out of prison. I'm certain that I'm going to get delivered from this bondage of jail. That's not what he's saying. He says this. Here's what he means by that. He means that God's will will be done. And that is where I have courage. I might live, I might die. I might be in prison forever, I might be let go. But my, my fear of my future is not crippling me. Do you find your joy often being stolen, worrying, having stress over the anxieties of things that you absolutely have no control over. As I said, you know, for some of us parents, we have this fear of what's going to happen to my kids. Things that you really ultimately have no control over. Are your parenting decisions crucial? Yes. But they're not final. How many days do we waste away Struggling. Where am I going to go to school at? Where am I going to go to college at? What job am I going to have? Am I going to get the house that I've always wanted? How many days do we waste away with worry, anxiety, and our, our, our joy is stolen by our fear? Many believers live in this great fear, and then they say, well, I don't know why I don't have great joy. Because you have great fear that's overcoming your joy. Listen to what Jesus says here in the Sermon of the Mount, Matthew 6, 34. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now, I don't think this is a rebuke against our fears and our worries. I don't think Jesus is simply saying, hey, stop your worrying about tomorrow. It's not good for you. It's not good for your body, and you really shouldn't worry and fear and stress and anxiety. So stop doing that. I don't think that's what he's doing. I think what he's doing is saying this. Hey, instead of you having fear and anxiety and worry, how about you replace that with a supremacy of treasuring Christ above all things? A Christ who is sovereign over your future, that I've already determined it for you if you are a believer. I think that's what he's saying here. 
that if we would be able to treasure Christ like Paul is treasuring Christ right here, I think that's what drives out the fear of future. You might have heard of a local story. Um, it's about a man named Danny Holmes. A local news story. Maybe you saw it on the news last week. Uh, but he was a man who was uh, charged with murder back in 2016. And him and his defense attorney went to work on three years of pretrial prep to ultimately submit his not guilty plea uh, tirelessly. Three years. They're working. Oh, we're going to beat this case. We're going to beat this rap. We're going to do all these things, right? Well, they get into the court case that really started last week. All right, They get into the court, and before... Either party, the, the prosecutor or the defense, has any opportunity to give their opening arguments. Danny Holmes leaned over to his defense attorney and he said this. Josh, I can't do this. I've got to go all in for the Lord if I'm going to go at all. He stood up. And gave a 20-minute confession that he was guilty of all the charges. That does not happen. Why did Danny Holmes flip his page? Why did he turn from fighting to now confessing? Well, here's what happened. During his three years of incarceration before the trial, some moment God transformed Danny Holmes from convict to convert. The finger of God, the same finger of God that drew and painted the skies, touched this man's heart. And now Danny treasures Christ above all things and says, Prison, you may take my body, but you will not take my soul. He goes on to say things like, I fought for nothing my whole life. Now it's time to fight for Jesus. See, this is what happens when we can treasure Christ above all things. We trust him with our future because he is good, he is sovereign, and he is a loving God. The fear of future is driven out. Let's go to the next section here in 21 through 26. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with, be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So verse 21 is this very famous passage. It is a tattoo. It is a coffee cup verse. The Christian to live is Christ. To die is gain. This is Paul's motto. This is his life verse, so to speak. And this is basically him saying... He can't lose. No matter what the judicial verdict is, right? If it's either a freedom or imprisonment, doesn't matter if it's death or life, he cannot lose. He could only gain. 
Jesus. If Caesar will release me, I'll just keep living for Christ. I'll keep gospeling people. I'll keep sharing it out there. That's cool. But if Caesar found him guilty and punished him by death, it only got him Jesus. He would be able to leave the suffering world, the pains, the toils, the anxiety of this earth, and he would get to see Jesus face to face. Paul had a very difficult decision between the good and the far better. He could not lose. You see how Paul did not suffer with an attachment to the present life. He was homesick for God. He, he didn't spend all of his days trying to preserve his physical life. And I admit, this is hard. This is very hard from us. It's, it's hard because uh, we are life lovers and we are life preservers at our core, aren't we? We do everything to extend life. We try to protect ourselves. We say, that I don't really fear death. You might say that, I don't really fear death. How many insurance policies do you have? How many doorbell cams do you have? How's your security system at the house? You get past that, how many glocks and shotguns do you have at the cabinet as you walk in the house? We are life lovers. And at our very core, we do everything we can do to preserve and extend our lives on this earth. Now, there's nothing wrong with that necessarily to defend ourselves. I'm not saying we'd have to do that. What I'm telling you is if in, in our preoccupation with life preservation, there is the place where we will have fear at our very core. We will be preoccupied with life preservation. Fear will invade it. And then our joy will be stolen. And as I said, this is hard for us. We love life way more than we should. We like to serve a God and whose God is he's for our protection, our safety. He doesn't want us to be dangerous, right? That is an unbiblical, puny God. God never promised us safety on this earth. He promised us eternal security. I think Paul had experienced the ultimate freedom from the fear of death. Think about the fear of death and how it enslaves you, right? It's this fear, you know, you think about it as a young child, how it, it just, it holds you captive, right? Paul experienced an unspeakable freedom from the fear of death. And I think someone else in the scripture that might understand what this freedom feels like is Lazarus. Think about when Jesus, uh, upon Lazarus' death, right, sick for days, dies a death, and then Jesus calls him to new life. He resurrects Lazarus from the dead. Do you think that Lazarus ever walked the earth ever again afraid of death? How do you scare a man who's already died, right? They come up to Lazarus, hey man, we're going to kill you. 
Oh, that's cool, man. I've already done that. This time, would you just do it quicker? Last time I sat around sick for a very long time. Just do it quicker this time. You can't scare a man who is not afraid of death. And you and I, if in Christ, like Lazarus, we have already died. We have been raised and resurrected to new life in Jesus Christ. We have no reason to ever fear death ever again. Jesus went to the cross and he's dying our death to take away our fear of death. When he is defanging Satan, when he resurrects himself from the dead, he's saying, you don't have to fear death ever again because I've conquered it on the cross. And for all of those in Christ... In Christ is where you have the courage to face and overcome the fear of death. Paul's teaching us that in order to truly live for Christ, we have to be able to face death. That if we don't properly handle death, if we avoid it, deny it, don't wrestle with it, I think that actually impacts how we live for Christ. Listen to what some great theologians uh, talked about in, in wanting to keep the certainty of death on our minds at all times. Martin Luther said this, Even in the best of health, we should have death always before our eyes, so that we will not expect to remain on this earth forever, but will have one foot in the air, so to speak. Jonathan Edwards as a young man, wrote down 70 resolutions of his life. And this is number nine. He says this, I resolve to think much on all occasions of my dying and of the common circumstances which attend death. The Puritan preacher Richard Baxter lived a life of, with a chronic bodily illness always, all of his days. And he said this, I preach as though I never should preach again, and as a dying man to dying men. That's why my sermons are so long, by the way. This might be my last sermon today. I don't know. i got to get it all out there. Also, uh, I think one of the distinguishing marks of the Christian is how we ponder and handle death. It sets us apart from the unbeliever, so to speak, right? Paul sees death as a promotion. The unbeliever sees death as a panic. They may say they won't panic, but the day they're getting ready to take their last breath on earth, I promise you there is panic. There will be no 401k that comforts them, no college diploma that will ease their pain, no trophy that will give them any security. It is only what they've done in Christ. For the unbeliever, death brings uncertainty, doubt, fear, terror. For the believer, the only thing death brings is us to Jesus. So the question is, do you fear death? If you are trusting in your good works and your church going and Bible reading and listening to the fish and not cussing and drinking and uh, just avoiding a lot of bad things, if you're trusting in those things, 
to get you to God and get you heaven, you have every reason to fear death. But for those who trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross, His work, the resurrection, we have no fear of death because Jesus is our death slayer. In Let death be a teacher to you today if you are not in Christ. Death is a teacher to us all, right? But let death be a ushering into a glad invitation to following Jesus today. Lay down your fear of death at the feet of Jesus. All right, let's keep going. Here is, uh, and we'll pause here for a moment because here's what I think what Paul says. He says, it's better that I die. So selfishly, Paul's saying, man, I could leave this place. It's messy. People are funky in the church. I'm tired of doing all this ministry. People trying to kill me left and right. I'm in prison. Uh, Caesar's trying to keep me down. I'd rather just go be with Jesus. That is the far better. But then what does he say? He says, it's better for you that I remain here. See, this is the selflessness of Paul. He's not thinking about himself. As he said, for me, it's better that I get out of here. What's better is to serve you, to stay behind. Look what he said in 24. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account, church. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. He chose what was better for the church and not for himself. This is the servant heart of Paul. He says, if I go away and I'm with Christ, it's not good for y'all. Like, I know you'll survive because you're the church of the living God. It's going to make it, God, right? But they would, they would miss Paul. His gift, his value to the church would be greatly missed. And he said, I'd rather just stay with you for your good and your joy and to build you up. Their church would miss Paul if he went to home to be with Christ. Let me ask you a question. If you vanished from this church, next week you don't come back. Is anyone missing you? Is anyone saying, hey, we're so-and-so. Their gift, their service to this church is such an encouragement to my faith. Where did they go? Would anyone notice that you're not here? I say that. uh, It's been about a year where a situation came up where someone, um, they went missing. MIA, Milk Carton, Christian, don't know where they're at. They're gone for like three months. And uh, they weren't connected. They weren't serving. They weren't in community. Uh, loosely connected on s- Sunday with handshakes and greetings and those kind of things. Uh, been here for a while. Uh, they were kind of a church customer. And uh, they disappeared. And it took a while for anyone to notice. Finally, someone did notice. Reached out to them and asked them where they'd been. You know what this person said? I was just seeing if anyone would miss me. Just wanted to see if anybody would notice. I don't want that to happen to you. I want you, if you're not here next week, 
the week after and you disappear. And you, I want someone to ache because you're not here. I want them to miss you and the gifts that you have that you can encourage me serving in this church. It's not just coming. and Paul served the church. I want you to be with us. I want you to use your gift, your gift of serving to encourage me, to encourage all of the people around you and not say, I don't know where they're at. And this is family, right? This is the... This is the family of God that he has created, and I don't want you to disappear and no one to not know where you are. Please step into becoming a part of our church. Let's transition to the next section here, verse 27. The third fear we'll unpack. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you for that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So Paul is encouraging the church in Philippi, To not be frightened by their enemies, by their opponents. All of the the hostility, the haters of the gospel that are around the church in Philippi, they're in Rome. Uh, Don't be frightened by your enemies, right? I think think the encouragement here for us clearly is that we are the church, but we have gospel opponents outside of these walls everywhere we turn. If you do not see that you have opponents everywhere you go, you probably are not living out your faith properly. You will meet opposition if you are living for Christ. And there are people that don't like your message. They'll call you a bigot. Um, we, don't, we don't love those accusations, right? But you will meet opposition if you're engaging the world with the gospel. So what's easy is for fear to overcome us. I'm afraid of people's approval. I'm afraid I might lose my job. I'm afraid I might lose my friends. I'm afraid I might lose influence around people. We give ourselves over to men and they enslave our lives and kind of keep us down. And Paul's saying that the third thief here is that the fear of man will steal your joy. But here's the beauty of this text. He gives us the logic for why we're to be fearless. Why are we to be fearless in the face of all of these enemies and opponents? And the logic that he gives is found in verse 29. Let's look at it. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Do you hear what Paul just said? Paul just gave you two gifts of how you can be fearless Christians. Here's the two gifts. Faith and suffering. You might say suffering, gift. That's what he said, didn't he? He he granted us to believe And he granted you 
to suffer. We talked about suffering last week, didn't we? How can a loving God grant me suffering? It's crazy. Here's why. Because God will use any instrument in his hand to bring you to Christ. Closer to Christ, deeper relationship to Christ, greater dependency, devotion to Christ. He will use any means necessary to do it. And that includes suffering. First, here's the gift to believe. That's what he said. He granted us the right to believe. There's the sovereignty of salvation. God grants us belief. He grants us faith. And then he says here that he grants suffering to come upon our life. He's basically saying our opponents are in the hand of God. He's governing that. He grants it. So Paul's logic here is this. Your adversity and your faith in the midst of adversity are both gifts from God. Therefore, fear not your adversaries because they can't do any more than what God grants. That's how you drive out the fear of man. Look at Psalm 118.6. These are gospel promises. Psalm 118.6, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Let me show you how the fear of God drives out the fear of man. Look at uh, Matthew 10.28. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body and hell. Powerful, powerful words. What drives out the fear of man? The fear of God. Paul's joy is... It's unstoppable. I mean, it is absolutely unstoppable is what we're seeing from Paul. And I imagine that it was aggravating all of his opponents, right? I mean, they're trying to do everything to shut this guy up about this gospel. And it had to have been so aggravating to him. Paul, we're going to kill you. That's cool. That's a game. I'll go to be with Jesus. Okay, we won't kill you. We'll just keep you in prison. I consider the present sufferings of the world nothing compared to future glory. Okay, we'll let you live. Well, to live is Christ. I'm cool with that. I can just keep doing ministry. That's, that's Paul's case. They couldn't stop him. Over and over again, his powers kill me. I'll be with Christ. Let me live. I'll live for Christ. Make me suffer. I'll get more of Christ. He has an unstoppable mentality. Why? Because He has a supreme treasure of Jesus. You and me, when we treasure Christ above all things, we too can have unstoppable joy and drive out the fear of all these things we're talking about today. Paul lived a life that would be considered dangerous. Wasn't foolish, but he lived a dangerous life for the gospel. Wasn't afraid to be in jail. He wasn't afraid to die. He was afraid of God. He had a fear of God. And I think us, as Christians, we should live dangerous lives for the gospel. 
if we're not truly life preservers and life lovers, then death has no sting on us. Why should we walk around the life trying to live a Christian safe life? I don't mean we live foolishly. I don't mean we run in front of a firing squad and say God is sovereign. That's not what I'm saying. But I believe we are called to live dangerous lives for the gospel. John Chrysostom, who was an early church father in 407 AD, he's someone who lived dangerously for the gospel because he treasured Christ above all things. Listen to what he said. Uh, he was accused, and obviously he was guilty of, preaching the gospel. He infuriated many, many people in Rome in 407 AD. When he was told of his fate, that he was going to be executed, here's what he said. What can I fear? Will it be death? But you know that Christ is my life, and that I shall gain by death. Will it be exile? But the earth and all its fullness is the Lord's. Will it be loss of wealth? But we brought nothing into the world and can carry nothing out. Thus all the terrors of the world are contemptible in my eyes, and I smile at all its good things. Poverty I do not fear, riches I do not sigh for, and death I do not shrink from. Listen, as we close out here, I think summarizing all three fears here that we've talked about today. If we can treasure Christ above our future, above our physical lives, and treasure Christ above our seeking approval of man, there is the place where all of these fears lose their sting because of what Christ has done. For the believer, Christ has already determined your future. It is secure already. For death... He was pierced on a cross. He died your death so that you don't have to fear it ever again. And for all your enemies that oppose you in the gospel, they will all be trampled underneath his feet. Because of what Christ has done, you and I can live as victors. All of his victories in his life have been now credited to your account We are now victors over all of those things. We don't have to suffer from God amnesia, doubting God, forgetting who God is, because of what Christ has done in his finished work on the cross. Let me pray for us. Lord, at our core... We have rejected and rebelled against your sovereign good plan for our lives. We often uh, take it in our own hands. We like to write our stories. We often think that we have more control over our lives than we do. God, that always leads us to a place of fear. 
God, thank you for uh, your grace and your mercy sending us a fear conqueror. One who conquered the future. He conquered death. And he will conquer our enemies. I pray that we find rest in Jesus, our great conqueror. In his name we pray. Amen.